Hi everyone and welcome back. This is Disability Saves the World with Dr. Fady Shinuda. I am Fady Shinuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars, activists, artists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, hobbies, and adventures. Most importantly, you'll get to hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fady Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns. I have a PhD in public health sciences, and I am currently a postdoc in London in the UK. I identify as a fat, disabled, cis man of color. If you don't know me, uh, hopefully you'll get to know me over the course of the next few episodes. But for now, I want to jump into today's show. We are joined by Dr. Tobin LeBlon Haley. Tobin, who uses she/her pronouns, is an assistant professor in community studies at Cape Breton University in Nova Scotia. Tobin is currently working on a community-based research project on homelessness on the rural urban fringe with Dr. Laura Penn. I'm so looking forward to speaking with Tobin about her work. And like, we got to be ready. And I think disabled, queer, racialized, indigenous folk, poor folk are like ready for that fight. And her life outside of academia. I love to run and listen to terrible 80s music. And to ask her how she thinks disability can save the world. Hi, Tobin. Hi, Fanny. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me in this very strange time that we're in. It is a very strange time. I am finally out of self-isolation. And so um, I'm now in a new place. Um, I'm out of my sister's house and at my parents' house. I'm calling you all the way in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. How are things over there? I'm actually in New Brunswick. Oh, you're um, in New Brunswick, okay. Which is, which is a, a, it has a very long and complicated backstory um, that I won't bore anybody with. But uh, yeah, I'm currently in New Brunswick um, in my hometown of Fredericton. Okay, well, thank you for coming on again. And I want to jump right into segment one, what I like to call inside the project, the research, the work, the art. Um, And the first question is, um, how did you get involved in disability studies? How did it come about? Yeah, um, this is by accident in in a lot of ways. So so I'm a mad-identified woman, um, and I... I'm a political scientist, so poli-sci, this is changing, I think, in a lot of ways, but poli-sci has not always traditionally been amazing at embracing disability um, or disability studies. And there's some, there's some exceptions, you know, there's, there's scholars like Michael Prince and Michael Orsini who are doing some really important work within poli-sci policy studies um, who do attend to disability and math studies. But, um, but by and large, you know, it's a discipline that that has not had disability on the periphery, let alone at the center of the work. And so, you know, when I when I was studying as a political scientist, especially as a master's student, you know, I was very much my my life as a as a mad woman was very much separate from my work. Um, and it wasn't until I started doing my PhD at York and was thinking about incorporating some of 
some of um, my own experiences, but also some of the frontline work that I've been doing into my research and focusing on that time, what I referred to as sort of mental health studies or critical mental health studies, um, that my supervisor got a hold of me and said, listen, like, I think you need to go over to uh, the critical disability studies program here um, and talk to somebody. Um, and right. so fortunately, my supervisor um, was really uh, sort of aware and, and, and tuned in to some of the conversations that were going on. And so she sent me over and I met Jeffrey Ryu and the rest. And we did a reading course together. He ended up in my committee and, and the rest is sort of history. And that was sort of my foray into disability studies. But um, it, it was very much, by accident, very much by accident. So the first person you met in disability studies was Jeffrey Ryum. Wow, yeah. that's quite lucky. <laughs> I know. He was so nice. And I just like wandered over and I was like, hi. You know, like I'm Tobin and, and you know, a PhD student. It was my second year. You know, a PhD <laughs> student. And I was like, you know, I, I don't know anything. And I'm, I'm writing about, you know, uh, like boarding homes and, and, you know, like critically. And I think he was like, okay, well, she's critical. But wow, she needs a lot of help. And yeah. uh I sort of, um, yeah, very generous with his time and, and really introduced me to the, the world of critical disability studies and math studies. Changed my right. life. Like the supervisor came through. This is such a nice story. <laughs> my supervisor, yeah, knows what's up. It's why you work with critical feminist scholars. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Leah, so, Leah Bosco, in case anyone's listening. Right. <laughs> um. So I want to know, like, um, what is the kind of project or the topic that you're working on right now that uh, you'd like to kind of talk about? As a political scientist, and I really hope people won't hold this against me, um, but because, you know, you're like, oh, art. And I was like, oh, yeah, I wish I had an artistic bone in my body. I wish <laughs> I was expressing myself and, and my, my thoughts artistically. But, you know, as a political scientist, in a lot of ways, you know, people use the word, this is, might not be the greatest way to phrase it, but the word gearhead. Mm. But like I like I like um, I like policy, and most of my work is about how uh, disabled, deaf, mad folk um, experience social policy, right? And and like what it means to actually live policy. What is like the embodied experience of social policy under neoliberalism? And so almost all and also all well, almost all of my work has to do with that. It's sort of and it's, so it's critical policy ethnography. Rather than doing like a top-down policy analysis, which has its place, what I'm interested in is what is the lived, sort of meaty, fleshy experience of living with social policy under neoliberalism as someone whose life is marked by disability madness. And so all of my work sort of sits there. um, And uh, I'm I'm particularly interested in housing. One of the things I'm working on right now is uh, a research project on homelessness on the rural-urban fringe. And I'm working with a colleague of mine, Dr. Laura Penn, out of the University of Guelph. And we previously had been working with uh, with a community organization called Services and Housing in the Province. It's a large nonprofit organization doing work in southwestern Ontario um, on something separate, on an OTF sort of uh, program evaluation piece. And we developed these really close relationships with people who were living at the intersection of like socioeconomic poverty and housing precarity and homelessness and who wanted to continue having that conversation and do some of that work. And so um, with uh, services and housing in the province, Laura and I came up with a project where we are going to be working with people to develop digital stories about what it means to live with homelessness and housing precarity outside of uh, sort of the traditionally conceptualized urban space of homelessness um, and outside of the 
traditionally conceptualized rural space of homelessness, sort of in this liminal space between the rural and the urban, or what's referred to in the literature as the rural, um, rural urban fringe, or the rough, and sort of exploring those experiences and, and providing people with a forum to to elevate their experience, to talk about their experience, to say what it's like to live in that space and with those pressures. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. The idea is that it will um, also produce policy webinars and sort of a multi-stakeholder conference. Um, and we're working really hard at this point, although of course everything's on hold because of COVID, but um, we're working hard to, uh, to make sure that this is sort of a community engaged, community responsible, um, community responsive project. So incorporating um, research participants and research partners in project governance, paid really well for their yeah. work, and sort of, and, and practicing those, um, those politics that we hold so dear as well in these spaces. So it's really, you know, we're in, in the early, early, early phases of this. Um, we were supposed to be doing the workshop in June, but um, obviously that's not gonna happen. So right now we're uh, on hold. And so, just reminding uh, everybody that they can't get evicted right now if they live in Ontario. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting to think of like the urban and the rural as like this, you know, the urban rural fringe that you're talking about, the, the liminal space in between those where people are kind of ending up living. And I'm just wondering, is like a, a lot is a lot of what you're talking about also gentrification, like yeah. urban spaces becoming unlivable or being people being totally pushed out, but then also rural spaces being inaccessible. Is that also part of it? Yeah, it's a great question. So what we're finding, and again, sort of early days, is that um, there is, uh, with the with the you know, high, high, high cost of living in urban, large urban spaces, and so in large um, municipalities, um, you're seeing a lot of um, folk moving to sort of the outer communities in and around those large uh, metropolitan areas. So you're thinking about, like, if you think about Toronto, we're seeing people who are moving to places like Dufferin County, right? Living in Shelburne, living in Orangeville, and the the population in those spaces is growing really fast. Right. Very fast. So since the last census, let's see if I get this right, um, the population of Shelburne has increased by something like thirty percent. Right. You know that's wild. And in those spaces where people are already living, the infrastructure of the community really can't support that kind of quick population growth. Yeah. And so what is happening to people who are marginalized, what is happening to people who are poor, what is happening to people who are disabled and who are homeless, um, you know, the cost of living is going up, um, access to lower market rent is becoming more complicated, uh, land speculation is becoming an issue, right? So it's, it's really, people are really struggling and are feeling the pressures of the increased cost of urban life in these smaller communities outside of the uh, larger city centers. And so where previously people had been you know, had gone there from urban centers to sort of find like a like a more affordable place to live. Now right. we're seeing, in some cases, we're seeing those pressures being translated. Right. And yeah. you know, we didn't set out with this project. It, it and and the project that uh, came before it, we didn't necessarily set out to capture disability. Of course, it was one of the lenses that we were looking through. But with the first project that we did, you know, about seventy five percent of the folk that we were talking to who were experiencing um, homelessness and housing precarity in the rural urban fringe identified as disabled, right? And so it's having like a particular impact or a particular intersection with disability in these spaces. Yeah. And so we're trying to really understand why that's happening um, and, and how people are experiencing it. 
and what services that need to be developed? Like what should, what is a policy response and what is a community grounded policy response that can actually take this on? I remember reading like, I mean, this was a couple of years ago, something like people in our generation who are trying to find housing, something like 5% or so ended up actually living in like Barrie and as a way of like moving out of the urban space, finding affordable housing. But then the cost of houses in Barrie went up by like an astronomical amount. I don't know what the percentage was, but it was over 10 or 20%. Yeah. It was so it then it became like an unlivable space for people who, um, you know, are low income or marginalized or who need specific like accessible housing. Yeah. If it seems like we're finding. So I'm really interested in in, in knowing like what uh, theoretical approaches kind of underlie uh, your work in addition to disability studies. Yeah. So if you know, as a as a political scientist, if if someone asked me to describe my, my theoretical framework, um, I would say that I do um, the feminist political economy of disability policy, which is boring, um, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not, it sounds really boring. Um, but, uh, but, but you know, I, one of my main theoretical interventions is feminist political economy, and in particular, the way in which social reproduction is theorized, right? So social reproduction being that daily and intergener- intergenerational labor sort of involved in reproducing people as well as social norms. And what I'm really interested in as a policy scholar is how social reproduction for disabled mad folk is being organized through social policy but by the state. So how is the absolutely socially necessary daily intergenerational labor required in the reproduction of bodies and social norms being organized by and through the state um, in and around disabled people's lives, right? And what what is the impact of that? Because you know we we do advocate for more care work, more care, more care, more research, more more funding for care, more services for care. But you know we also have to attend to what are the um, you know damaging normative ideas of disability and madness that are being communicated through those care networks, right? right? And what are the long term effects of of that, right? How does it prop up violence against disabled people while also drawing on like heavily racialized and feminized underpaid care work? Right? And, and so, so what does that look like? And what does that mean for folk who are, who are living at the intersection of um, you know, uh, disability and, and socioeconomic poverty? That's sort of like what I'm most interested in. And, and so I, I do use a, a social reproduction lens going in. Um, and it's very much in keeping with a lot of the care work that's happening, like the care, care is sort of what we're all focused on at this moment. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in how it, how social policy, how state policy is impacting the organization of disabled people's social reproduction and intervening in, like through social policy, right? Because we need social policy in order to live. Right. People are dependent on social programs in order to survive, just like the basic they're not even getting the basic needs. So it's sort of like the most basic fundamental requirements. We are so dependent on uh, on the state's provisioning of social or the goods and services necessary for social reproduction that you know people are subjected to like litanies of violence as a result. And it is through the provisioning of social reproduction that that violence is enacted by the state. Give us examples. Okay, so like the most obvious example is that in order to get access to ODSP, for example, like the higher higher paying, quote unquote, slightly higher amount of welfare, you have to identify as disabled and subject to yourself to those really invasive medical right, assessments. Right. 
right? So that's sort of a very basic example of, of how this like, violence is enacted. So you have to routinely identify as disabled, uh, talk and talk about yourself in terms of like biomedical language, and also subject yourself to um, uh, sort of routinized uh, assessment by the medical system. Which has often been, uh, and you're required to do that like reassessment, right? We've seen yeah. ADSD come up with like new rules or, or, you know, people are kicked off of the, um, you know, wheel trans and have to get reassessed for wheel yeah. trans and all those kinds of like, somehow disability is both permanent, but also fleeting <laughs> in terms of like policy. And I think we're going to see a real, a real, I mean, who knows with COVID, but I, I had anticipated that we would see an, an increase in those sort of like um, deeply disciplinary uh, practices with the uh, Auditor General's report on um, the value for money uh, chapter on the, the, the section in that chapter on ODSP. So that very damning, I don't know if you saw the very damning report came out from the Auditor General. Um, I had it, no. Of Ontario on on ODSP and it's 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 a value for money audit. I'm putting that in quotes. People can't see that. Um, but that's what it's called. And uh, and one of the sections of that is an assessment of ODSP and sort of the the underlying message of this was that there are uh, people on ODSP who don't need to be on ODSP, and that uh, the government needs to do something to make sure that people are being people who are accessing ODSP are quote unquote. Um, entitled to the benefit. And one of the major concerns that was raised was the um, uh, the assessment and reassessment of people's disability status. And that, that too many people were being deemed uh, disabled for life and didn't have to go and have that uh, disability assessment. So I, I do foresee uh, an, an uptick in, uh, in this particular example of, of this uh, form of violence that people have to be subjected to just to get access to those most basic yeah. Um, necessities. Yeah. And we are going to see that, that you know, um, I think disability claims are going to increase exponentially. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, uh, I think, you know, people think that COVID is like you recover 100% from COVID. And, you know, we're learning now, that in fact, that people are going to have respiratory issues for potentially the rest of their lives. And, you know, there's all the mental health stuff that's going to yeah. come in response to this and um yeah i mean essentially the government has rolled out basic income right yeah. uh, in terms of its new ei approach and you're wondering about uh all the cancellations to basic income that happened here in ontario um and whether you know even the billion dollar cut to public health you know whether those things are going to be um something that we return to as like a fundamental way of restructuring uh our like welfare system our care system yeah and i and i'm sure your work and analysis will be an especially important part of that so i want to talk about methodology um oh, okay. and your approach is community-based and or it's community engaged um and you said you you know um, people in the community, um, uh, people who are, you know, people who are living homeless, um, are like on um, the project, right? They're part of they're part of the decision making bodies. They're uh, in some case kind of co researchers or co developers. So uh, I want to know, like, how did you, how did that you and your partner um, get to that? Decide that that's what you were going to do, um, and so far in the project. Um, how has that been? Yeah. So, I mean, methodologically, yeah, I, I would say my work 
is you know, critical policy ethnography. And so you can't really do critical policy ethnography without talking to people. And if you're going to talk to people, you have to do it in a way that is not only ethical in the ways that the academy demands us to be ethical, but ethical in, in keeping with, um, you know, nothing about us without us and, and uh, other rallying cries of disability studies. Um, I would say that my, my commitment to doing community engaged work um, really came out of making a lot of mistakes. Right. Right. And, and looking yeah. back on projects and being like, Ooh, geez, like, I wish I had done this a different way. Yeah. You know, um, being trained as a political scientist, you know, there is still this very positivist and I was trained by lefties and, and who pushed me in. And that's why I have the capacity to like think critically about this and, and reflect and be like, Ooh, wouldn't do that again. Um, <laughs> you know, there's still this very positivist, you know, streak that runs through the discipline and, and it's there and it, and it is really like, very much present and you know always working against that and always trying to remain critical of uh, of how we do research and what it means to extract knowledge from people right rather than build knowledge with people together yeah and so really it came from just like making a lot of mistakes um and meeting people who were doing and reading people who were doing better work than i was right right um yeah, yeah reading gigi reading, watching Eliza do her work, uh, Eliza Chandler, sorry, um, you know, listening to, to my colleagues like MJ and Sona and you and Chelsea and Kim, people doing all this really, really lovely community engaged work, um, and kind of pausing and thinking, okay, like I really need to step up my game here. Like this is not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm community based, but not community engaged. And so how can I be community engaged going forward? Right. So when I when I came out of my PhD, um, I would say my work was community based. Right. Um, which is fine. <laughs> I guess. Especially in your PhD when community engaged is probably really challenging. Yeah, but it, it should have been. Like fine, whatever. But lots of folk do it, right? So um uh, you know, and 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 I have, you know, I've been so fortunate meeting folk like Lucy Costa, right? People are really pushing, pushing, pushing the academy to get its shit together and like yeah. do real community work. Yeah. And uh, and you know, so I, I really just made like a lot of mistakes, and and have learned, I'm where I'm learning, um, uh, how to do real community engaged work, and um. And, and what that should look like. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to be working with uh, Jay Dolmage and, um, and some other folk out of uh, the University of Waterloo on one of the uh, Investing in Justice projects that came out of the uh, class action settlement um, the from survivors of, of Huronia, um, Rideau, and Southwestern um, centers. And that's a very community-engaged uh, project that we're working on where we're supporting um, survivors to be authors of their own books so it's two edited volumes but we're not like we're just supporting folk to to tell their own stories um and so you know learning a lot through that and then i would say that my research partner laura pin is probably more skilled than i am at, at some of this and so we're really learning from each other um and so when we designed this project uh which really like it's kind of like a, not much has happened, right? It's because we got a grant in January and then COVID. So we can't even recruit. Right, yeah. Right? We're just like waiting for, um, we're just waiting for 
the money to be freed up so we can pay people because we don't want to ask people to do labor until they can be fairly compensated for it. Yeah. And so we're just, uh, we're, we're waiting. But what we've done is we've built into the governance of the project, um, the capacity to pay folk to be part of that and, and, and uh, making sure people are paid for that work to be involved in organizing and recruiting and uh, right. Um, and is that the distinction between and stuff? yeah and is that a distinction between like community based and community engaged work um is that people are paid for their participation or what would you say is like a uh, a distinction like yeah, a, I mean, an important one for me and and i i learned a lot my a, a colleague of mine um who's at york ethel uh, tungohan uh, who does like amazing community engaged work um focuses on, on migrant labor and she, and, and migrant labor activism. And um, having read a lot of her work, I think that the distinction I would make, it is not just about paying people and, and making sure people are involved in, in project governance, but that the question arises from community, right? Like it's an, ex, an, an express desire of community. And then all these other pieces too. Right. right. So that, yeah, of course people are paid just like we're paid. Yeah. Right? Of course, people are involved in project governance, just like we're involved in project governance. Of course, lived expertise needs to be recognized the same way that academic expertise, arguably more importantly, <laughs> academic expertise is is recognized. Like all those pieces about first and foremost, it must come from an express community desire. Right. So essentially, like the thing that you find, right, what we call results or outcomes or impact or hey. all those kind of fancy words, or we don't use any of those words. Um it will help the community, will benefit the community, will, is a question they wanted answered in the first place, right? Yes, or was a process that they wanted to go through. To go through, yeah. Right, so, right, that, that maybe, maybe outcome isn't as important. Right, yeah, of right? course. Maybe, maybe like an exploration of this topic is what's most important at this particular stage. Um, and that that is, and that that is what is expressed. Right, and, 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 and of course, like <laughs> the reason I have a job is because I do this work. Like I get a huge benefit, right? And and I work at the university, professor. Of course, there's tons of power dynamics, and and you have to navigate all of that. And so I think fundamentally, the question has to emerge from community, mm. you know, or or at least the desire to do the project needs to come from community. And then sort of the like what what the question is, and and the ownership over the project still has to like reside in and with community, with academics and community members acting as sort of uh, guiding forces to the project. That is sort of where I'm at in my, I'm not going to say journey, that's a gross word, but that's where I'm at in my <laughs> yeah. learning process. Is, well, I, um, hope, I hope COVID passes, I mean, for all of us, but I hope, you know, that um, the community that you're working with can come back and the project can restart in some ways. And we'll, find, we'll, find, we'll find a way. Yeah. 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 Like the money's there to pay people, so now we gotta, we gotta find a way to get it done. Exactly. All right, let's move into segment two. I like to call this the middle or the liminal space. I want to ask you, who's your academic crush? Who is it that you just can't, like, stop, um, like, fawning over? Um, I think probably right now my uh, academic crush or the person that I'm sort of most enamored with is Dr. Sammy Shack or Shock. Dr. Sammy Shack, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I follow them on Twitter, or follow her on Twitter, and um, and just the like the analysis is always there, the body positivity is always there, the like uh, 
you know, uh, queerness, uh, queer analysis is there. The, you know, it's all the critical race stuff is there. It's all there. Feminism, like it's just, yeah. it's, this, this person like embodies that and just lives it in this really rad way that is both like very academically rigorous, but also highly, highly accessible very, right? to everybody. Very and I think that is so rad. Yeah, so. I mean, I mean, I think, I mean, I think we all fell in love with Dr. Um, or Dr. Shaq when, um, uh, oh, they, with Lizzo? <laughs> when they danced with Lizzo, yeah. yeah, like, you know, and it went wild and then, of, or like it blew up on Twitter and went viral. And then of course they wrote an incredible piece, <laughs> uh, an incredible piece, right, of literature after, and I can't remember what the online, um, uh, like resource was or what uh you know where where it was published but you know they wrote this like piece of literature that was so great and then of course like they took on all the trolls and the haters right and it's just it's just kind of incredible uh yeah and i think right now um dr shuck is also doing uh things like um uh you know participating in like dance zoom parties at night and also doing something called i can't remember what they called it but it's like quarantine um outfits like oh every... no yeah the corn fashion it's amazing it's so good right and I, I just feel like yeah I think my favorite dress so far of of hers is um just like it's this dress with all these middle fingers on it oh, <laughs> and I was like first of all where did you get it second of all does it come in sweater form because <laughs> so... <laughs> I want one because I want one yeah yeah I think we're all a fan but that's a good one no one's yeah yeah yeah, I, I I think my favorite outfit so far has been, like, the mermaid-esque, like, s- glitter uh, top pants and, I want to say, like, over sweater, but it's, like, shimmery. Right. I don't, I don't have good words for clothes, but it's like, <laughs> it's like, a, it's like an overlayer. It's long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, I would I would say uh, Dr. Sack and 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 her book Body Minds Reimagined, right? well, yeah. which I, I recommend everyone check it out, especially because speculative fiction right now, like it's it's I mean it's always relevant, it's always like highly relevant intervention, and it's something that it took me a really long time to come around to, but uh, you know, like we're living in in wild and people keep using the word unprecedented, which I hate, um, times, right? Like when, when, when more, like at what other point is, is like work on, on, um, intersectionality and speculative fiction more relevant than it is like right now. Yeah. I mean, we are living the movie contagion. So it's like, yeah. So, and like people who've imagined a different kind of world, right. One that's potentially like accessible, like anti-racist, you know, anti-ableist, anti like all these things that we want for our future, right? Yeah, dive yeah. right in there. Exactly. All right, who, um, the next question in this segment is kind of like advice that you have for younger academics or students, um, maybe those who are currently making mistakes and want to, want to get a little bit better. Um, what would you say to them? Just finish. Like, I don't just, like, get out of the PhD program. No. Um, just I finish. Just <laughs> fucking finish. And this is not, like, it took me a long time to get my PhD. Right? Like, I had a baby. I worked full time. Like, no judgment. This is not. But just finish if you can. Um, what would my advice be? That's not, like, weird neoliberal job market advice, which everybody knows and, like, doesn't need to hear again. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, finish, publish, get grants, blah, blah, blah. 
but be like the perfect neoliberal academic subject. I, I don't want to say that. <laughs> um, I would say like sustain a hobby of some kind that gives you joy and gets you away from your like academic crap. Right. And, and, and no, like read, reading really esoteric, like fiction novels doesn't count. Mm. Like, I mean something that turns your brain to, into a totally different place right. that uses a completely different muscle, whether it's physical, intellectual, music, like whatever, right? But find something else that can become your escape. Mm. You need that because yeah, you absolutely need it. And then do it, right? And, it's like yeah, find it and, it and practice it. Yeah, don't let it, whether it is an instrument or painting or sewing or yoga or bike. whatever. Yeah. Laying on your floor in a dark room, like screaming at the ceiling. It doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> what I part of the actually, brain does that work? <laughs> I don't know. That might actually be academic. <laughs> 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 I would have that in my life. <laughs> But um, I think, yeah, like, I think really finding something that you love or that, or, or making a commitment to sustain at least one thing in your life that has nothing to do with who you are as an academic. Yeah. Um, because we are so, we are like so, I mean, some people are better at this. I'm not. It becomes so much a part of our personality. It does. It becomes so much a part of our identity. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And that can I make you like mean- a total wank puffin and like kind of an asshole. And like, if you like, sort of let that take center stage, and um, and it can also suck you dry. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think you know, I was I, at one point I was looking at um, like friends and friends and stuff on Instagram, and I was like, people have hobbies, right? It's like this real thing that they like participate in, and like I need one of those, right? And, <laughs> like which one? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, what do I do? So you know, I I started experimenting, right? I hemmed my own pants using a sewing machine. I took up swimming that, you know, I hadn't done in a really long time. I kind of, and and that's one of the ways that, like, I did find swimming in the end as, like, this thing that I really love right. doing. And, and yeah, so, you know, experiment. Um, yeah, experiment. Find something. I really like that advice. I think that's really good. Do something. And it can change. Like, it will change. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I can't be, like... swim at all now. <laughs> Yeah, right? Like, I used to run marathons when I was a kid and, like, I have a job, so I don't do that anymore. But I still run, right? Like, it's, you know. Um, it can be whatever you want, but just do something. Something. Something that is different. All right. So, on to segment three. We call this Outside the Project, the Research, well, the Work. Yeah. Uh, again, who is we? It's just me here. Um, I want to ask you, uh, who is the most famous person you've met and what was that like? So I was, I've been practicing this answer. Like I, turns out I haven't really met anyone famous worth noting ever <laughs> in my life that, that is sort of universally known. Okay. Except for George Bush Sr. Okay. But I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> I was like a little kid and I was in school in the States and like we had to like line up and shake his hand. But like, that's not formative. That was just like I remember because school made the school made a big deal about it. So like that's it. Like that's the only one that I can and sort of access that everyone will know who it is. And like well, it's not I a great in terms of like our world. Right? I think the the most famous person I've met or the person that I was like most excited to meet who's famous in our universe is Simone Schmidt uh, or Fiverr. Do you know oh, who I, that is? I do not. 
Okay, big shout out to Simone. Simone is a musician, a Toronto-based uh, folk musician, um, who wrote a album, sure, we'll call it that. I like don't really know how to talk about these things in the contemporary moment, but wrote an album um, called Audible Songs for uh, Rockwood. And it documents the experiences of women who were institutionalized in the uh, Rockwood Asylum, Asylum for the Criminally Insane in Kingston in the 1800s. Whoa. And Simone pieced together through like three years of, of research all of these like cases and then wrote songs about it. That sounds amazing. It's amazing. And and Simone's are, like they are a rad person. Capitalist, like decolonization is at the front and center, right? They're um, anti-racist, you know, they really strive to do all of the the work that um that we profess and try to do, but they live it in this really organic, like super rad way. And um, yeah, and so I cited um, one of their songs uh, on this album in a paper I wrote, and uh, and they found out about it and uh, asked to meet to talk about something sort of tangentially related. And so we came to my office at Ryerson and I was like, mm. And so we actually get to sit and have like a chat. And so, yeah, I would say that's sort of the, the most famous person I've met who's worth like time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's also, it's also nice that someone read your work. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, and like, like went to the ref <laughs> and like, yeah, exactly. And went to the reference list. <laughs> I know. You're the one who read it. Amazing. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so, so we met up and we talked about like eugenics and anti-capitalist politics and yeah, it was really awesome. <laughs> well, I'm really interested in, um, finding their work and potentially have them on the podcast. That sounds oh, like yeah. really, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. What obscure fact do you carry around and why? What is the thing that you kind of, um, this thing that in a lull during a conversation, you're like, did you know this? about a particular topic okay so everyone has an individual tongue print like a fingerprint what yeah so my so like, tongue is unique to myself and yes. only myself yes like your like like your thumb but your oh tongue God. if if hoover only knew that it I was like, I don't know, it's, it's very, um, it, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, so our tongues are, like, unique. Oh, my God. I would have never. the only thing I know. I don't know any other interesting facts. I think that's a pretty interesting fact. I mean, we always think that the only part of, like, that we can identify ourselves with is, like, our fingerprints or, you know, our dental records Ugh. if, like, we're burned to a crisp or something. But now that there's, like, a potential huh. third and that piece of anatomy that can... But now I just like because what it always brings to mind to me is like how can we harness that for like like accessible technology? Oh right, right. That's good. Because like your thumb, like being able to. So like I, I always think about. I, I always imagine people licking their phone when when, which is terrible. Don't do that, especially in the <laughs> pandemic. But like you know, you put your thumb on your phone and it opens your phone. You have like face recognition yeah. and it opens your phone. You know. So it always makes my people like licking the like the thumbprint thing on your phone. How can we how can we harness that for like accessible? Right. You, know, you just like stick out your tongue. 
and then like yeah. you went that way. I like rather that better. Having, rather having to like put your finger and hold it on if you have one, right? On a on a machine or um, face recognition, which means you have to hold your phone steady. Right. Right. Can you just like stick out your tongue? Can that be like another one? I mean, I went to surveillance and you went to access, and so that is way better. <laughs> well, well, I mean, that's the other thing, right? It's like you have, you know, people take you to the bank and they're like, stick out your tongue. <laughs> anyway, okay. that's, that's like I my like that. not very good. I thought it was excellent. I don't know, like um, flamingos are pink because they eat shrimp. I don't even know if that's true. <laughs> All right. I want to ask, what are you reading now? What is the the book that you have on the night uh, nightstand? Uh, Marrow Thieves. I feel like everybody else right now. Have you read it? I've read the first chapter and I didn't get past that. Did you have to put it down? No, n- I, sorry? Did you have to put it down because it's so like acute right now? No, I started this actually a long time ago when it was, um, when there were, you know, discussions about it in, like, the Canada Reads, um, um, you know, when it was up for, like, an award and stuff, and, and I remember reading the first chapter and, 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 and and not getting into it. I think sometimes YA isn't for me, and, Mm. um, but it's, I hear people love it, like. Like, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily, I know why it's, classified as YA but I don't even think about it in that way right I mean like it it really transcends the traditional categories that we we put around literature right I find it very difficult to read right now and like I'm a white privileged woman and I'm saying that so I think it's really it really resonates it's really resonating with the contemporary moment yeah yeah, right. I mean, I should try it again. There's like no reason why I shouldn't pick it up. Maybe after. Maybe this- after. You know, like I was, I think I was five or six chapters into it when this hit, so I was like, okay, like I was already used to used to it and, and was already you know really really invested. So, but I, I do I do recommend people read it. I'm I'm also reading um, to my daughter who's four, um, a boy called Bat. Do you know about this series? This, no, this book. a boy called Bat. Yeah, a boy called Bat. Um, it's uh, I should go get it. In fact, I should have had it here and like prepped it. Um, a boy called Bat is about uh, a young boy um, who uh, is autistic um, and whose mom is a veterinarian, and they adopt a baby skunk. Right? And it's about being a little kid and like wanting to keep a skunk, like a pet you can't keep. Right. And and the autism is present in the book. This kid's autism is part of his, but it, it's done pretty well or so far. We're not done. It could get really weird and inspirationally. So like, no, but, but so far um, they're doing a pretty good job of like, you know, um, uh, including uh, autistic characters as just, you know, part of life, regular part of life. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. And it teaches kids about autism and it teaches kids about, skunks and it teaches kids about loss and it like it's the family is divorced like it's you know and so the kid travels back and forth between his parents house and it's it's actually it's pretty good disability studies book i think i would so far so good thanks Those unless great the kid like overcomes something in the end and then i'll frantically text you and be like take this down <laughs> <laughs> so far so far so good Okay, uh, we did talk about hobbies earlier, but I don't think you mentioned yours. So what is your hobby and how did you get started? 
I love I love to run. Yeah. I love to run. Um, I love to run and listen to terrible 80s music. Okay. Like the the the, the more terrible the better. Right. So yeah. just like a lot of vanilla ice. Like... A lot of like white snake and like <laughs> and and deaf leopard and you know, um but but better, like more more quality stuff as well. Okay. Um, but but yeah, some some pretty terrible eighties music, and then some good stuff like Queen. But um, yeah, and just like run and and feel angry and sad and stressed about the state of the world is yeah. one of one of my hobbies. Um, Running does that. It like just like generates so much like movement, and you you sometimes yeah, it's just it's a, it sometimes can be very emotional process. Yeah, and I find it, like, a very good, um, like, way to get all of my feels out on the road. So I'm that person who runs and cries. Right. Like, runs and yells. Right. And now that we've moved to the woods, it's it's much easier to be the person who runs and cries and the person who runs and yells. Because in Toronto, because there's so many people around, it was a lot you know people were a lot less accepting of it in some ways um but were more irritated by it whereas here if they see it they get shocked whereas in toronto if they said they're just like oh shut up <laughs> but here i sort of get to do it solo so that that's kind of nice so that that and baking i think a lot right yeah I think we're all, like, I mean, I've looked up how to make starter, like, probably, you know, six times since Like, your own sourdough starter? I 100% want to make my own sourdough starter. But, like, you have to feed the thing every day. I'm like, this is too much commitment. I know. I know. I was talking to, actually, a good friend of mine about that last night. Literally, we had a conversation about she and her wife are making their own sourdough starter. Yeah. 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 So. No, I'm baking a lot. That's great. Well, I want to end by asking you the seminal question. Um, how do you think disability can save the world? Yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I think disability is already saving the world. I think we're already doing it. Like, I think, if nothing else, what sort of one of the clearest examples I can think of is when this whole pandemic started, all of the people who are chronically ill, all of the folk who are disabled, who as a result of the, a particular disability, um, have to be really careful about hand washing and coming into contact with others and who is led into their homes. Right? Already have all of this knowledge and skill and um, have been really generous about sharing it with us and have also been really good about being like, everybody calm the fuck down. <laughs> right? Like, I've been doing this for a decade. Yeah. Right? Like, chill. Yeah. Right? And all the mad folk, myself included, being like, yeah, yes, we've been preparing for the worst case scenario for like a really long time. Yeah. And like now it's here. And like, like I'm already ready. Like the neural pathways for like this kind of like high pressure stress is something I've already experienced. Right. Right. And like, here's how I deal with it. For example, run around and yell, but like whatever. Right. Um, And I think, and, and sort of the, the counter to the drive for neoliberal productivity in these really trying times, like a lot of it's from the disability community. And people being like, no, like it's okay if while you're trying to survive, you don't publish like eight articles. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's okay. 
And so yeah. I think in that, in those ways, disability is already saving the world. Um, I think what's really important and what is really going to push us, and I'm a pessimist who always hopes that she's wrong, I'm like an optimistic pessimist, um, is what's com is what comes next, right? Like I, and I think disability, I think disabled, disability, disabled people, disabled scholars, mad folk, um, are really the skill set that that we have developed is going to be very important because we're seeing things like homeless people are being housed for the first time. Yeah. Um, people are being provided with like a living, a living, quote unquote, living wage, unless you're accessing welfare and then you're just being forgotten. Right. Um, so we're seeing some elements of the, um, of the guaranteed income project, right. We're seeing, um, healthcare being extended in some countries to folk who are not permanent residents or citizens. We're yeah. seeing a lot of the things that we've been asking for as progressives for a long time happening. And so what is going to happen when this all comes apart? Right. Because it will. It because will. The, the state and the capitalist class must be getting nervous. Like they must be nervous that all of the cracks in the system are evident, not only to people like us, but to everybody. Yeah. Like they have to be getting nervous and what like post COVID fascism is coming our way. Like we were right. already living it. Right. But what is right. this next phase that's coming where all of these gains that have been made are going to be rolled back. And what does that look like? And I think there are the skills of disability, anti-racist, mad indigenous organizers are going to be so crucial. And I think one of the, like the, one of the most concrete examples of that is like the simple, um, like the idea that, uh, you know, that's been trending quite a bit that we need healthcare workers as much as we need, you know, grocery clerks, Yeah. right? We need the truck drivers as much as we need the nurses, right? Like those kind of, uh, you know, we haven't seen that before in a health crisis, people looking to grocery clerks as heroes, yeah. right? And, yeah. and um, like reimagining a value for particular labor, right? Reimagining what's possible is very much happening now. And I think, you know, a, a disability analysis is like a really important part of that, right? Um, yeah. um, and hopefully, like you said, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna take them to task if they try to go back or- They will, they work. will try to go yeah. back. As soon as possible, they will try to go back. Yeah. I suspect. Perhaps not on the wage subsidies. Maybe those will stay kick around a little longer, right? And maybe maybe some of the, the financial, like the direct income benefits, will stick around a little longer. Um, but you know what? Like what happens? What's happening? Like, what's happening in Toronto where they're putting and, and in the UK where they're putting homeless people? They're providing them with housing. Yeah. Right. Like what's what's going to happen? You kick people out? Yeah. Like, the answer is yes. And like, what is that going to look like? Right. You know, what are, the, what are the discursive justifications that we're going to see? And, like, how do we unpack those? And I think that, that the, what is, like, what, what will the new explanatory frameworks for why that's happening emerge? Mm. Right? That not only are we saying, you know, you see in Alabama, oh, yeah, well, people with intellectual disabilities are, you know, considered less, like, like deserving of a ventilator, for example. Right? And we're seeing like, you know, explanatory frameworks that have always been there drawn upon to justify why like a disabled person is like less human than, you know, 
an able-bodied 37-year-old white man. Yeah. Right? So we're already seeing that. So what are the discursive explanatory frameworks that are going to come forward when the state starts rolling back these emergency provisions that they've put forward? What, like, how are they going to justify it? Right? And like, we got to be ready. And I think disabled, queer, racialized, uh, indigenous folk, poor folk are like ready for that fight. Yeah. Right? Because we've been having it forever. Right? And so those are the skill sets that I think are going to save us. Hopefully. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we'll tip into some sort of like weird, benevolent capitalism. That's even, that's gross. We don't want that. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think disability is already saving the world. And I, I think that those skills are going to be crucial in what comes next. Just essential. Well, I don't think uh, there's a better way to end than on that note. Tobin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great talking to you. Um, I hope you and your family stay safe. And uh, yeah, thank you again. Thank you. This was such a lovely way to spend a couple of hours on a self-isolating snowy day. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Thanks again to Tobin for coming on the show today. Over the next few weeks, we'll be joined by other disability and math studies scholars, activists, and artists. Stay tuned. This podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Fadi Shinuda. Please get in touch by sending an email to disabilitysavestheworld at gmail.com. If you're interested to learn about me and my work, you can check out my website, fadishinuda.com. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Disability Saves the World.